Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp. No, no, just kidding. I'm Ben Golliver, live in Portland, Oregon, with Rob Mahoney, who has graciously agreed to enter an empty room in the cavernous Moda Center at 11.52 p.m. to tape this podcast. And you might be wondering, okay, where's Andrew? We had technical difficulties on our first try uh, of this podcast earlier today, so we had to call in the reliever, the replacement, uh, Rob Mahoney. I don't know if you're Alfonso McKinney. (laughs) I don't know if you're Andre Iguodala going in the starting lineup, Looney. I don't know who you want to be. But thank you so much for taking some time to do this. I just want to say that I'm being held here against my will. Please tell my family I love them. Hey, you're not supposed to use the safe word until at least 10 <laughs> minutes into the podcast. Um, and all jokes aside, we're, we're taping this after game four, a pretty spectacular game four. I mean, it wasn't the greatest defensive effort, uh, I think, by either team, but it goes to overtime. Golden State, obviously, the headline is they sweep the Portland Trailblazers out of the Western Conference Finals. They advance to the NBA Finals for the fifth consecutive year, becoming the first team to do that since Bill Russell's Boston Celtics a long, long time before either you or I uh, was born, Rob. Now, you've spent basically this whole playoff run embedded with the Warriors because I keep seeing you at every gym that we go to. Um, so sorry about that for following you <laughs> along. Uh, and you did a big Sports Illustrated cover story, obviously, on Steph Curry and, and Kevin Durant uh, and everything. We can dig into that in a second. But just your initial impressions here uh, after Game 4. Steph Curry had the triple-double. Draymond Green had the triple-double. I think in my story I compared you know, the whole big brother, little brother analogy with, with Steph and Seth. And the Warriors have been the big brother to the Blazers here, 12-1 and one in the playoffs against them in the last four seasons, eliminating them three times. I mean, Steph just kind of torments these guys, doesn't he? I mean, isn't he like the older brother from hell? Yeah, I mean, it really does have that kind of dynamic, especially when you get into the, you know, being down 17 points in three of these games and coming back three times. They're just kind of toying with him. It really feels that way. It feels like, you know, a Thanksgiving basketball game, either, you know, older brother, younger brother, father, son, however you want to look at it. There's definitely a dynamic here where one of the teams is a cut above, and they understand kind of how to lock in in different ways, even in a game like this where, as you said, the defense was – this was not, you know, championship-level defense in this game. But when they needed stops, you know, Draymond Green was on top of everybody. You know, Alfonso McKinney, Kevon Looney, these guys were making huge stops in this game. Steph and Clay were flying around. And so they have that capacity. It, it's not really flipping the switch because I think they're trying to, you know, puzzle and game plan it out throughout. But this is just a team that's on a different problem-solving level than a team like the Trailblazers or a team like the Rockets or you know basically any of their competition in this field. And whether you want to look at that as kind of the Curry-Durant Warriors who solve problems in a particular way or you know the Durant-dominant Warriors like we saw in the first round and how they were kind of approaching the Clippers and then now with you know the really Steph-championed Warriors or Steph and Draymond-championed Warriors and how they can really pick you apart in a lot of different ways. Uh, question for you. I should know this. Did you have any brothers? I mean, you're a basketball player. Are you an older brother or a younger brother? I'm the I'm a younger brother, so I got the full younger brother complex okay, thing. Okay. So going on can for you sure. relate to Seth? <laughs> I can absolutely relate to Seth. Okay. Except I would like to think that in my family, I am more of the Steph. Okay. It's just kind of an inverted thing. So you were able to sort of rise up and over overcome and conquer your older brother is essentially what That's happened? That's true. Can you remember back to the days? Can you put yourself in Seth's mindset? Because I'm an older brother, and I'll be honest, uh, I like to think of myself as a, a good older brother, but I also think there was some tormenting going on. 
uh, you know, back in uh, my childhood. I can't what see is, that from you at all. <laughs> yeah, right. What is it like to be in Seth Curry's shoes? Well, I mean, you have to think with this magnitude, especially. And it, it's really funny in these playoffs, you know, you hear, you not only see everything that's going on on the court, but that you hear a lot of the noise. And you see not only what's going on Twitter, but you hear every question that these guys are asked. And if you were to go back and tabulate, I would bet that over half the questions that Seth got are about Steph, are about their family, are about their parents, are about how do you emotionally kind of navigate a series like this. And these are brothers who like each other. You know, these aren't guys who are at odds under normal circumstances. And they also both happen to be two of the best, what, 250 basketball players in the in the world? Yeah, and maybe two of the best 30 shooters in the world, or two of the best 15 shooters in the world. So it's a Marsha, Marsha, Marsha <laughs> thing is what you're kind of describing. I mean... Like, I'm not trying to rub it in his face at all, right? But we heard so much of that talk. Steph has 37, 13, and 11. Seth has one point in 15 minutes and misses the only shot he takes. Again, I'm not trying to rub it in, but for Steph, that must even be weird too, right? Because obviously he's, you know, he's talking about how cool it is he gets a Western Conference champion hat, and he's obviously gleeful and elated that they were able to pull that win out down the stretch. He doesn't sit at all in the second half or overtime. And yet part of him is just like, man, I just punked my younger brother's team so hard. Draymond just punked the entire Blazers' front line. I actually saved Myers Leonard, who yeah, got true. in a little bit of reverse punking there uh, with the big dunk and oh the chest gosh. pound and uh, you know his career high in scoring. But uh, isn't there some weird tension there? Like That's going to make Thanksgiving a little bit strange, isn't it? I don't even know that it will because this is kind of the normal. You know, the, oh, the, that, <laughs> that makes it even sadder, Rob. <laughs> the Warriors going to the finals is normal. You know, Steph being on this MVP kind of stratosphere is normal. Seth, as a guy who has really had to kind of find his way in the league, work his way through multiple injuries, multiple teams now, and the Blazers have been the most comfortable he's been in the NBA. But this is a guy who is, you know, a player who comes off the bench, who can make an impact, who can help, you know, they've needed him to help stretch the floor at times in particular and be, you know, whether a second or third guard out there to help, uh, you know, put another threat in the mix, but this is kind of the way it goes. And Seth, you know, that's why it made it all the more interesting that when, you know, when Seth was really able to challenge Steph, poke the ball away a couple times earlier in this series, you know, get the better of him in certain situations, hit some clutch threes in previous games. Those were kind of more of the exceptions to the rule, I think. But that was also the most fun, the most dramatic tension of the whole series, right? I mean, obviously Golden State's comebacks were special in and of themselves, but, you know, it wasn't like game six, game seven, where oh, now the series fills in the balance. I mean, tonight it was very much like, well, if they somehow don't pull this off, which they're definitely going to pull off, then they just go home and win it in game five by 20 points. I mean, that was sort of the feeling. The anxiety level in the building, though, it's I'm sure it comes through on TV, but you had people who were standing midway through the third quarter not standing to cheer, just standing because they didn't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> and, and they were just sort of like quietly in some stretches just taking in this comeback um, you know, I could just, you know, kind of feel the ulcers, you know, uh, the, the group ulcer. And the fact that they did it again, I mean, how many times can we say championship resolve, championship experience? I mean, they've given the same press conference three games in a row. Yeah, they really have. And and to your point about the, the arena here, too, I mean, you've just never heard a sound like the air that comes out of the balloon when Steph throws a full court outlet pass to Draymond for a layup in a tight game when the Blazers need every freaking point they can get. Or, you know, Steph runs off a curl, two defenders come to him, and, like, McKinney waltzes in baseline for a dunk or whatever it is. I mean, there are just so many of those plays in visiting arenas that, you know, it's one thing if it's at Oracle when the whole place is rocking when anything happens, and they've been particularly good of late in these playoffs. 
but in these visiting arenas it's just it's it's a whole different experience the you know just everything that the warriors can take out of you as a team they take out even more in your crowd Okay, so first things first, uh, I want to apologize to my two younger brothers, Daniel and Aaron. Aaron actually listens regularly. Any tormenting that went on during our childhood, Aaron, I apologize for. Second thing, Elizabeth, please cover your ears. I'm going to make uh, a comment that probably isn't appropriate for you. This game was Steve Kerr's wet dream, wasn't it? I mean, (laughs) 12 guys played in the first half. Uh, As you're mentioning, this whole strength in numbers phenomenon that he's kind of patented, right? The offensive rebounds from McKinney and Looney, I swear to God they combined for 75 offensive rebounds to extend possessions. Obviously, Steph and Draymond both had the triple doubles. We're both phenomenal. I thought Draymond's game three was actually a little bit better than his game four, but now it's like we're comparing Picasso's. It's like, okay, yeah, which one do you prefer, right? Um, And then, of course, Clay, you know, he was kind of down on himself for his shooting night and kind of joking about that, but... I mean, look what they did locking up Lillard and McCollum down the stretch. I mean, both those guys were struggling to score. Uh, One question I had for you, though. When Lillard, at the end of regulation, drives into the paint, you know, not doing the step-back 37-foot bomb like he did against Oklahoma City, but I think making the right decision in that moment because he had said afterwards he had fatigue, he's dealing with this rib injury, uh, he just really didn't seem like he had the range tonight. Driving into the paint, he throws up that little baby hook shot, and it just flirts with the rim. There was almost some Kawhi-like vibes to it. Did you think that was going in? Because here's why I ask. I was writing on deadline tonight, which means I had to file as soon as possible at the buzzer, and usually that means a matter of like a couple of minutes. I would have been so screwed (laughs) if Lillard had made that shot, because obviously I'm writing the whole thing as if Golden State's going to win it, because... Let's face it, the odds were like 85% they were going to win that yeah. game, right? Did you think that shot was going in? I didn't. And some some of it may have been that kind of same kind of confirmation bias you're talking about, which is if you look back at my notes and my framing for writing tonight, it would be very similar. I think basically since halftime, when in the final 30 seconds before halftime, Steph popped off eight unanswered points. And it was, all of a sudden, I think it was a, a 12-point lead that went down to four. And it just felt like it felt like something turned in there. And you know, by all means, the war, you know the the Blazers had a chance to win this game afterwards. They had lots of opportunities, including that you know that one from Lillard, including a pretty decent look at the end of overtime to you know from the corner uh, off an inbound play that I thought was as good of a look as you're probably going to get. In it, those it was a great look. I felt like it was short the whole way though. It was, and so. I actually, yeah, that's why I thought the first one had a better chance than the second one, but they were both great looks. It was incredible they got those looks after struggling to generate stuff throughout the fourth quarter in overtime. I mean, Zach Collins is not hitting the rim. There was a bunch of shots that were just so wayward from Portland. Their offense just hit the skids. I think they had, what, 16 points in the fourth quarter, six in overtime. Um, Golden State, when they ramped their defense up, man, especially when Looney's in there, they could play some special defense. For sure. And, you know, I think that's where Draymond, and you mentioned his Game 3 performance in particular, just being kind of a master class on both sides of the ball. This one, again, they really had to figure stuff out. I think Portland was really clever in terms of the way they kind of reshaped the floor, you know, moving guys out of the strong side corner so that, you know, whoever was going to be helping against Lillard or McCollum would have to be coming from further away. And we saw early in the game, Mo Harkless get a couple dunks out of that. We saw some corner shooters, you know, on the weak side corner get wide open looks because Draymond's helping over way too, you know, quote unquote too far, but it's kind of what he has to do to put another body, in, you know, in the way of an all, you know, an all league guard, basically. So I think Portland did a lot of things to try to to throw Golden State's defense off its game, but 
over a long enough timeline, I think the Warriors just figure you out. Okay, here's some stats for you real quick, and then we're going to get to your SI piece on Curry. So since 2015, Golden State has made five finals now, five in a row. They are they could win their fourth title uh, against Milwaukee uh, or Toronto. They're 18 and one in series over the last five years. They're 75 and 24 overall against all opponents. They're 44 and 10 in the playoffs since Kevin Durant's arrival. They're 16 and seven against the Rockets, 12 and one against the Blazers, 15 and seven against the Eastern Conference, aka the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's ridiculous, Rob. And so I was kind of in my thought space this weekend. I got a little oxygen. I walked around uh, in a nice park about 20 miles east of Portland. Beautiful pictures. Follow me on Instagram at ben.golliver if you want to take in the the beauty uh, along with me. Waterfalls. I mean, it was great. Um, I saw you, it looked like you got you know fell into a river or a creek at one point. No, look, I just do it for the gram. Okay, <laughs> I have the angles. All right, I stayed perfectly dry. And okay. as you should know, Rob, you know, never stray off the trails. Okay, you know, leave nothing but footprints. Take nothing but pictures. I have okay? heard we, this. We've got to fo- follow the most important park laws. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I got into this sort of meditative thought experiment state. Like, what would the NBA look like if the Warriors had just never come along? And we have to say how many things went right. Chris Cohen sold the team at the perfect time, right? The right people bought the team. Steph Curry got over his ankle injuries. Andre Iguodala did not sign with the uh, Sacramento Kings. Draymond Green fell in their lap in the second round. Obviously, they're smart enough to draft him. Somebody else could have been smarter. Uh, Kevin Durant, uh, things broke perfectly there, so he's able to come, uh, you know, during that one cap summer. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on and on, even, right? Even stuff like Harrison Barnes being good enough but not too good. You know, it's like he was good enough so that they could win and then get back to the finals again, but ultimately flawed enough that they would lose and get Kevin Durant. Perfect, perfect thing to say there. Also, like Phil Jackson being like four years past his prime, so he couldn't actually close the deal with Steve Kerr as coach of the Knicks. Yeah, I mean, how, I, how's it going <laughs> these days, I wonder? <laughs> Great question. So all these things are conspiring to put Golden State in this position for this dynasty, right? But think of all the things that could be different if they just never come along. LeBron's probably got six rings to match Jordan, very likely. Kevin Durant's probably still actually popular. People might actually still like Kevin Durant uh, if that had never happened. Harden, his postseason numbers look totally different because he's not eliminated by Golden State's defense four seasons out of five. And you see what Golden State's defense can do to really good players. C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, I thought throughout this series, were kind of a shell of themselves facing that level of pressure and just having to deal with Draymond Green. This is actually how I put it, by the way. Draymond ran through the Moda Center like whatever natural disaster you want to mention, whether it's a hurricane, a tornado. He sucked up all the energy in game three and just sort of left everything as a wasteland. And that was the interesting thing about the crowd in game four. They were very, very excited for Myers Leonard, but I'm not sure they ever really believed that they could do it. You know, like, was there really a moment in that game where the crowd was convinced the Blazers were going to win? To me, it was just this state of unease, anxiety, like, how is this going to go wrong? When is Steph going to do us in? And then Draymond hits the three in front of Portland's bench. And it was just like, not this guy again. We just got hit with another hurricane. Um, Well, I mean, to that point, you know, just with it being a game four, I think everyone in the crowd kind of knows what's going on. All of the signs that I saw tonight were kind of to the effect of, like, we haven't given up yet, basically. Play with pride. <laughs> there was a little bit of a, like, we, we just want to see one win, or we just want to see a good fight. And I think, like, 
not taking anything away from Blazers fans, this is one of the best places to see, you know, especially a playoff game in the league. And I think they, like, the energy in the arena was awesome. This was a great atmosphere, uh, especially considering the circumstances. But these fans are not dumb. Like, they know that no. down 0-3 is a death sentence. They know it better than anybody because they've now they're now one in twelve against Golden State in the playoffs, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think they they knew what was coming. There's no doubt. Um, and like you're saying, you know, circumstances included, it was an impressive performance by the fans, but it wasn't that raucous, like, we're going to take you down. That's sort of what the feeling like was in Game 3. I couldn't believe how amped it was for Game 3. I mean, I've been to a lot of playoff games in Portland. That was one of the best crowds I've ever seen, and they've raised ticket prices and done all the stuff that these modern teams do, so it was great to see that. When going around the league, too, and, and seeing a bunch of different arenas, I think I'll, you see a lot of the things, you know, th- this is my first time uh, being at the Moda Center at all, and especially for a playoff game, and it's like a lot of the things that happen here very organically, other arenas try to make happen artificially. Like, they, right. they pump in the noise, they're trying to get the chance going, and they had something going on the Jumbotron, and they tuned it out at the second that the Myers-Leonard chance started picking up without any prompting, other than the fact that he was going completely nuts in the first half. And it's things like that that I think, you know, you have to have the fan base to support that. You have to have people uh, who, who are accustomed to the way kind of this kind of basketball works and what keeps the energy going. But it was at a lull in the game, and I think the crowd really brought it. And the people who were working the game up here in Portland wisely turned down everything and said, let's, let's give the fans and Myers this moment for what's ultimately been the game of his career. You're right. They know how to get out of the way and let the fans do the heavy lifting, and they were ready to do it. So some of these other like uh, hypothetical scenarios, I mean, Lillard's probably made multiple conference finals, right? Harden might have won a title by now. I think the Clippers, they might not have blown up when they blew, they blew up. I mean, I think so much of their own like being psyched out by life was just courtesy of just getting worked by the Warriors over and over again and feeling like they had no hope. When not- we, and when you think about, too, all the teams that have to, have had to respond to the Warriors, you know, when you think about the Rockets in particular and how they've shaped their team, you know, Darren Moore has been very open about that in specific kind of conversation with how the Warriors do things. Now imagine, like, what would the, what would the Rockets do if— the Oklahoma City Thunder were the power in the West. Or if they were trying to think about how to game plan past the Cavs, how different would the Rockets look? And, you know, how, what's the distinction between, oh, now we need a player to counter Kevin Durant in this context versus in a Warriors context? So I explore this a little bit more in my newsletter, guys. You can check that out. But these are just some of the things that the Warriors have shaped in terms of the narratives of star players, the style of play, how lineups work. Um, who gets to have rings, who doesn't get to have rings, who gets to have that sort of you know, rep as a big-time postseason player, who doesn't. Another one that I've always thought about is, does Tim Duncan keep playing for a couple more years? You know, Is he no longer worried about the effects of aging or not being as effective as he could be if Golden State's small ball stuff wasn't taking over the league right at that moment? I wouldn't have been surprised if he would have stuck around longer. I thought he could still play his last year, uh, and he was playing pretty good minutes. But the reason why I use that to set it up, Rob, is because that w- we just discussed what the league would look like without Golden State. But as you kind of dug into your SI piece with Steph Curry and talking about Kevin Durant, it's all about these guys' legacies, what this could mean. I think it's so hard to judge this stuff when you're in it, when you're watching it night to night, because frankly— They've made these heroics look routine. I mean, three straight games of comebacks with 17-plus points, I believe. Steph Curry's had 30-plus points in five straight games. I think he averaged 36 on this series against the Blazers. Um, you know, tonight, he made it look so easy in the first half. I mean, it, like, it was the greatest night of Myers Leonard's life, and he only tied Steph Curry in first-half <laughs> scoring. I mean, 25-25, to 25, 
that's again not a knock on Myers. He played unbelievable considering the pressure and you know being basically a career backup thrust into the starting lineup and everything else. But these guys are at just such a high level. So you spent a lot of time reporting that story. I'm sure you talked to Steph for it. I could tell. Give me some of the takeaways, some of the juicy nuggets, uh, maybe some of the goosebumps moments that you had when you were you know putting that story together. Well, I mean, the the whole theme of the story was kind of about the Warriors, as you mentioned, reckoning with their own history that as they're making it. You know, there are teams who have come through the NBA who, you know, they feel like something special might be happening, that they might be on one of those runs, that they might be one of those teams that are pulling together. But so many of those teams lose or a guy gets injured or they blow up or any number of things could happen. One good year, right? And then it's like, oh, the next year we could we didn't have quite that same jazz. You know, the dynamic was different. Somebody got paid. Somebody left. Exactly. And so the Warriors are in a particular situation where they already have some titles banked. They have, you know, potentially a lot of time with most of this core left. And Kevin Durant can do whatever he wants, whether he wants to stay a warrior or not. And that's an interesting part of that conversation too. But I thought Steph was really frank in terms of how he you know, tries to and tries not to reckon with that history and the things he allows himself to think about and the things he doesn't. And you know, I think Durant stoked some of this too when you know, he was talking to Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports earlier in the season about how there's going to be statues of all these guys outside the Chase Center, uh, which I think that there absolutely will be and should be given everything that they've been able to accomplish. And you know, how much Curry is willing to go down that road is you know, we get into in the piece. But one of the things that he, he kind of... Uh, admitted to indulging to is that there's sometimes at Oracle when he looks up and sees the retired numbers there and how cool that day will be for him. And this is a guy who, you know, his number hasn't even been retired at Davidson yet uh, because he hasn't completed his degree, but is already one of the great NBA players of all time. Uh, Will go down as, you know, an all-time champion, one of these, the great winners that the sport has ever seen. And I think to be in that position where you've already done so much with still some prime years left ahead of him, not to mention whatever he wants to make of the rest of his career. It's it's a good time to be Steph Curry. Okay, so here are my ideas for their statues. Steph Curry, it's going to be that picture-perfect, like drifting back to his right off the dribble, pull-up, three-pointer motion. We've seen a thousand, uh, tens of thousands of time at this point. I would say Clay Thompson should be in the middle of a press conference when he's bored, just kind of looking off, ga- <laughs> uh, gazing into the distance. I want Rocco in there, too, for the record. I think Kevin Durant should be the moment when they were basically like comparing him you know, negatively to Steph Curry during that title parade where he's kind of looking like, what the heck's going on here? I think that should be his statue. And then I think Draymond's statue, in all seriousness, should be when he's on the court reaching up to kind of love tap LeBron below the belt. Because to me, I think that is... It's the lowest moment of this whole run because it's the only title they lost so far. But they, these guys, and including after this game four to Portland, they go back to the feeling of losing that 2016 finals so often. That's true. It still burns them, you know. And and it's we're three years later. They've won two more titles. They're probably going to win another one. And yet the feeling. And I remember looking at Steph. I mean, he could not believe what happened at, after the end of that game seven of that series. He had the shot against Kevin Love. There were so many woulda, coulda, shoulda moments in that series. But the whole thing turned when when Draymond made that split-second careless decision in that moment uh, and was punished mightily for it by, uh, you know, Kiki Vandeweghe and company. Well, and the flip side on that, too, like for everything that that moment represents, Steve Curry even talked tonight when he was talking about Draymond about the response in Game 7, a guy who comes into the next game having cost his team something pretty substantial in that series and hits five threes. And it plays unbelievable, you know, the one warrior who really played unbelievable basketball in Game 7 of 2016. 
And so, you know, I kind of like, uh, as ridiculous as that sounds, to have the, the Draymond hit as a statue, there is something to the symbolism of that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's that's the moment they woke the beast, right? I mean, and, and he's just been relentless ever since. His game three performance to me, and look, everybody knows I come on here, and I, I think I said this recently that I would rather overhype Draymond and believe in him just blindly uh, until he finally falls off a cliff because that means I get proven right year after year after year because it seems like what everybody else wants to do is write Draymond off every year then they get proven wrong and eventually at some point four years down the road when he can't take off the 35 pounds in 20 days or whatever slim fast diet he's on and he shows up in the playoffs at 320 and doesn't look so hot and he's not covering ground those people are going to be proven right but I mean Draymond just absolutely took over control of that game three up and down the court I wrote that it looked like his body was in fast forward I mean it was the playmaking I think Steve Kerr highlighted uh, his decision making only having two turnovers despite how often he was pushing the ball how often he was you know drawing contact getting to the free throw line situations that could wind up you know really you know backfiring and going the other way I just thought it was a brilliant tour de force but I want I, I bring this up because I want to ask you you are one of the world's biggest Al Horford fans. And I know this because we've talked about Al Horford what, for what, like six straight top 100 years? <laughs> That's true. And invariably, you have him 10 spots higher than I do. And you succeed in actually convincing me to move him up the list. We got a question a couple weeks ago, right after game one, Boston versus Milwaukee, where uh, the debate was, who would you rather have, uh, Al Horford or Draymond Green. And it might have even been who's a better defender, Al Horford or Draymond Green. But um, after what you've witnessed here over these last couple of weeks, which is definitely, you know, Draymond, you know, at or near his peak of his powers, um, where would you rank him, I guess, league-wide? Would you take him or Horford? You know, go feel free to weigh in on that. And then just um, maybe what do you expect for the finals too? Because there's a couple guys who are going to put him to the test, right? Uh, Giannis or Kawhi. So, what do you think? I mean, why you got to do my guy Al like that? <laughs> he's sitting on a beach somewhere. He's he's, he's starting out his offseason. He's trying to get away from basketball, and you're throwing out the Draymond Green comparisons just to rub it in. Is brutal. Well, I did call him an eight-game player recently, Oof. which was also pretty rude. But um, would you take Al or Draymond right now uh, for this playoff run? No, I mean I think Draymond is obviously better, and. I mean, the weight loss thing is crazy. I, I still can't believe how much he was able to kind of reshape his body so quickly. And when I saw the numbers in terms of how much weight he lost in the amount of time, the first thing I thought about was I used to play pickup basketball with this guy who would come wearing like under his clothes trash bags to oh. try to like sweat out water weight basically. So didn't Martin Lawrence or Will Smith do this and like put themselves in the hospital because they were like jogging outside in trash bags to like lose weight for a role i 100 percent believe it it's a crazy thing to do shout out to my guy hollywood <laughs> who used to play this way uh i don't think that's the kind of weight that draymond lost this feels really substantial and I, like you see it when he's you know his kind of face up driving game it just has that pop to it where uh, and he's finishing so well. He's get, he's getting all the way to the rim for dunks, beating you know rotating defenders there. Yeah, he's turning the corner on people, right? And Absolutely. even in transition, he's getting the step on guards, right? And I mean, that's one thing when you get ahead of steam and guys are backpedaling and stuff. But he is just doing it time and time again. It, it, the prospect of an up and down series with Milwaukee, where both teams are like, hey, let's just let's just play total basketball. Let's just get into it. Um, with Draymond and Giannis just dueling as point forwards is starting to, I mean, you could probably hear me salivating 
uh, into the microphone at this point. Um, I've got one more question on Steph, though. I know we're bouncing around a little bit. This came from a reader named Stephen, and he uh, signed this a dedicated open floor termite. That means he's a Canadian, Rob. Uh, he writes, uh, with the resurgence of Steph's offense at what seems like an all-time playoff high for him, I wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not you think Steph's prime may have been wasted and or hindered during the KD era of the Warriors. Did sacrificing his own touches over the past two years to make room for an all-time great in Kevin Durant hurt his legacy? And so I think we can agree for sure that it hindered him, right? Because obviously he would have a lot more touches and a lot more numbers and just the most basic ways is he did have to sacrifice. I don't think there's really any way around that. And that's not blaming anybody. I think that's just sort of a fact. But do you think he sort of wasted his legacy or did he squander something in this uh, in this time period over the last couple of years? Because you talked to him about it. I mean, did you get any sense of anything like that, of, of the level of sacrifice? I mean, I'm sure he doesn't have second thoughts about it, but it is a complicated situation. It is a complicated situation. It's something that, you know, all of them are very conscious of in terms of him and Durant and Draymond. And Cl- I mean, Draymond has also talked in these playoffs about being the guy who, when everybody is healthy, needs to scale back his offense too, his scoring too. And when I talked to Steph about, you know, when Kevin first came to the team, he, he was able to rattle off the top of his head exactly how many shots he and Clay and Kevin had averaged the season before. Oh, but who's counting? <laughs> but exactly, who's counting? So clearly this is a thing that was, you know, thought about, discussed, carefully managed, especially in those early days that Kevin, you know, when he first joined the Warriors. As to whether he, you know, I think, I think the terminology here and the phrasing of it is important because did he sacrifice scoring opportunities and, you know, or, or, you know, even just kind of like marketing opportunities, being kind of a face of the league in a different way by not taking so many shots, by not having such a focal role in every possession that the Warriors run. Absolutely. Did he really give anything up in terms of his legacy? Did he really give anything up in terms of how he'll be remembered? I don't necessarily think so, because, you know, ultimately, like, what are you putting up these counting stats for? You know, you're doing it so that your numbers will look a certain way at the end of your career and you can look back and say, oh, I was this kind of scorer. Look at where I am on the scoring leaderboards all time. Um, I got into the Hall of Fame because of it. And so many of those things just aren't going to be issues for Steph. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Again, he's going to go down as one of the most accomplished players in the sport. And oh, yeah, for his trouble, for all the sacrifice, he is going to win a shit ton of titles. Sorry, Elizabeth. Um, (laughs) But... And there are guys across the league who don't get that. You know, they give up for whatever reason. They sacrifice on their teams to players who are lesser than Kevin Durant, and they don't get that payoff. And so I think Curry, I think we're getting kind of the best of both worlds where he has a peak season that's about as good as anything we've ever seen from a guard. And so we know what he's giving up. We know what he's scaling back from. And at the same time, it's going to be very healthy for him kind of in the next stage of his career to scale back in that way. History is going to look on Steph Curry very, very, very favorably. You know, the, the first line of his basketball obituary is going to be greatest shooter of all time, period. You know, there's going to be no debate, changed the game, uh, added all these different elements, uh, ushered in an entire generation, you know, inspired tens of thousands of kids. That's going to be one part. The second part is going to be, you know, X-time champion. Kevin Durant helped solidify that. Curry is going to get credit, full credit, from basketball historians for every single one of those titles because he was there first, because he had to sacrifice, and because he understood that there was a greater good. Um, nobody says, oh, only a certain number of Duncan's titles count. 
when he won finals MVP, this one was Kawhi's, this one was somebody else, this one was Tony's. He gets credit for all of them in the history books. Uh, it's going to be the same deal for Steph. Um, I also think for him, if he wants to be remembered as the greatest point guard of all time, which I bet he does, uh, bringing in KD helped his argument very strongly because pretty soon if they win another title here, he's going to be a four-time uh, titleist. He's going to be able to look at Magic Johnson and say, hey, man, uh, we're pretty darn close on the uh, on the overall ladder in terms of point guards. I mean, that's coming here pretty quickly, you know, within a few weeks. Um, I'm not sure if it would have been exactly the same case uh, if Kevin had never come. I also think it just it really helps his off-court reputation too because he's never been the most talkative. He's never been the guy to pound his own chest. Not much of a self-promoter. His shoes aren't very cool. But by adopting this per leadership personality where it's like, hey, Kevin, come here, successfully recruiting him when other stars are out there, uh, other contemporary stars are out there struggling to recruit players, um, making it work with him and having it work on such a high level where they put together a dynasty, all of that just reflects brilliantly on him. Uh, and I think, you know, historically, he's probably going to be the single biggest winner from this era with the possible exception of courage is because he won so much as a player too and has done it in different roles. Well, uh, let's be real too. I mean, this version of the Warriors, any version of the Warriors involving these players does not work without him as a personality. And in the vein of, you know, playing with purpose versus a purpose, I think Steph is one of these guys who's like, he's serious, but not self-serious. You know, he's a guy who will miss a dunk in a crucial playoff game and then go up on the podium and be willing to laugh at himself, be willing to kind of separate, okay, I'd made this mistake. This is something that I can learn from that we can poke fun at. He, you know, he's a guy who will take the ribbing about his ugly shoes when they come out. He's a guy who will go into a locker room and completely diffuse it, even when, you know, Draymond and KD have kind of ruffled each other's feathers uh, like they did in that game against the Clippers earlier this season. It's like, let's fly Steph out there as soon as possible. I think he was out at that time and get him with the team because he needs to kind of help bring things to an equilibrium. And so that's the kind of player he is in terms of what he brings to a locker room. And when you have a bunch of stars on a team and guys who, guys who have egos and have interests and have things they want to be gunning for individually, not to mention as a collective, obviously playing for championships, he's the guy who kind of brings all that together. For sure. Some of his other accomplishments, the 50-40-90 seasons, uh, a scoring title, a unanimous MVP, two MVPs actually regular season. And all of those things to me set up kind of a delicious subtext here, which is, you know, Kevin's going to be coming back from injury, most likely during the finals, we assume. Steph is playing at an incredibly high level. This is his opportunity, his best chance, I think, so far to win a finals MVP. And at that point, I do think he's inoculated against everything, right? I mean, whatever criticism that was out there about Steph during this this postseason, some of it was totally unwarranted. Some of it was warranted. And the guy was not playing very well for stretches of the season, uh, for the, this postseason run. Um, if he has a finals MVP, that's the last thing on his checklist. He's done every single thing that's out there. Um, that would be, I think, for Steph's believers, and I know there's a lot of them out there, sort of the sweetest possible reward for him to be able to do it and to step up you know, sort of when Kevin was out of there. But I also think one other part of his decision with Durant that's interesting, he's still only 31 years old. So if KD leaves, um, and I do think there was a sense when KD first got there that this was not forever, right? Like the, you know, he was going there to make sure he could win a title, to kind of shore up his own reputation, kind of check that off his list because he was sick of being second. And then we'll see what happens after that. I mean, Steph could play another, what, 
six, seven years at a very, very high level. And I think what we're seeing in this postseason is that high level might be even higher than we realized because uh, his play was suppressed a little bit here, you know, because of the Durant effect, uh, you know, during that run. So uh, to me, I think he kind of wins on every count because if they win the title this year, I mean, he's basically already playing with house money. Right. If they win the title this year, he's definitely playing with house money. If he wins the finals MVP, he's got nothing else left on his personal checklist. And he's still got at least five more years of good basketball left in him. That's a pretty good place to be. Well, I think the finals MVP thing erases like one of the last remaining kind of bad faith arguments against Steph Curry. You know, the kind of I'm an Internet person and I want to prod at Steph Hive. I think that will be that will go away. And so, yeah, you have, okay, they blew a 3-1 lead to the Cavs. You have a couple of things you could kind of throw at him. But ultimately, I think Curry has pretty close to an unimpeachable resume at this point. It's, again, the level of winning going over, you know, seventy between 75 and 80% of all your games won in this era is just insane. And so to do that with the individual success, with, you know, whatever the final number of titles ends up being, uh, I'm not worried about Steph's legacy. Hey, Rob, we're going to do something very professional and take a quick break here uh, for a sponsored ad read, probably by me. I'm guessing it's for Mattress Firm. Then we're going to come back and take some other playoff questions. Uh, we'll, we'll ditch the Golden State Warriors talk and see what else pops up. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Okay, as promised, Rob, we're back. Let's discuss a question from Peter, and it starts with the Warriors bigs, but I think it's a question that kind of extends past that to the whole playoffs. He writes, seeing Kevon Looney make winning plays for the Warriors in an elimination game versus guards like Lillard, McCollum, and also in the previous round against Chris Paul, James Harden, uh, and Eric Gordon, it tells me that other big men like Steven Adams or Rudy Gobert can absolutely play meaningful playoff minutes. The only catch... They got to have great defenders like Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, and Andre Iguodala to be swarming around them to help make it work. I think this is a fascinating question, right? Because in the Eastern Conference Finals, Milwaukee definitely want to keep Brooke Lopez on the court when at all possible, right? Same deal with uh, Toronto. They, they started the series with Marcus Saul. Then they kind of sh- shrank his minutes a little bit. He wasn't playing so well. But when they actually won Game Three. Mark played a central role in their success there. You look at Golden State, without Durant, they can't really go to those small ball lineups nearly as well. I don't think they trust them as much. And so they've been playing centers. They started Jordan Bell. Uh, they started Damian uh, Jones uh, in game three. That did not work out very well. He had three fouls in three minutes, and that was a wrap for him. Um, they've started Bogut at times. 
they've really used Looney a lot in crucial minutes, and he's really come through and, and held up amazingly well. I mean, we talk about Draymond and, and his conditioning. I mean, lots of credit to Looney for being able to play these high-intensity minutes and, and playing at a very high level, whether it's hitting the glass, defending on the perimeter like this guy's mentioning. So uh, I guess I'm just curious what you think. I mean, the the pop culture wisdom a couple years ago was you're always going to start big, finish small. The series are always going to start big and then wind up finishing small. The best teams are going to have five interchangeable players on the court in the most important moments. But this season, that really hasn't been the case, has it? Well, I think especially with this comparison and the thought of, you know, part of what makes Looney good is the fact that you have these other great defenders around him kind of negates some of the value of a Steven Adams or Rudy Gobert. Basically, if you're going to talk about a center as the most important defensive position, a guy who you're going to pay, you're going to pay him big money on the prospect that he is a great defender, blocks a lot of shots, um, that he's going to really be the anchor for your team on that side of the ball then the argument can't be that you need Draymond Green and Andre Iguodala and Clay Thompson alongside him because that's where he's providing his primary value. And so, like, Looney is a very different player from those guys in a lot of ways. He's more mobile, uh, a less imposing shot blocker, like, you know, less of a deterrent in a lot of ways. Cheaper. Much cheaper. Although, I mean, the Warriors may suddenly uh, figure out that he's not so cheap after off after declining his option. Didn't Steve Kerr call him a foundational piece tonight? <laughs> he did call him Was a that a slip of the piece. tongue, or is that really how he feels? It felt like that was really how he felt. I mean, he's certainly been that way over the course of these playoffs. Um, but it would be it would have been so interesting to see a healthy DeMarcus Cousins over the course of this run in particular and see how he would have fit in a series against the Rockets, for example. Because Looney is kind of tailor-made to switch and to do all the things that the Warriors need. Um, I don't really think of him as being a traditional five necessarily, although his his offensive game is certainly kind of limited around the rim, and then he'll take the occasional like 10-foot baseline jumper. Okay, so let's flip this around, though. Let's say Milwaukee wins the, their series and they go forward, or even if Toronto wins, either way. Right. Are those guys going to be able to play their centers against Golden State? Or are you worried that there's going to be a situation where they get played off the court like has happened? I mean, everyone points back to Moskov, right? Like, oh, how hopeless does Cleveland look with Moskov on the court? They better take him off and go small. Um, you know, at times, Tristan Thompson's even struggling to contribute, you know, as the uh, the rivalry deepened in some of those years. Uh, you know, everybody remembers Rudy Gobert doing the 360, trying to guard Steph on the perimeter. Um, do you think, say, Brooke Lopez or, or Marcus Gasol uh, can survive in the finals against Golden State? Honestly, I think Brooke would probably have a better you know, do a better job in that context just because Mark, I think, just based on his profile and what the Warriors would do to him, I think it would be an even more exaggerated version of what we're seeing now where the Warriors, when they aren't afraid of you shooting, they will dare you to shoot over and over and over until your confidence is shaken, until your teammates stop passing you the ball, until you really become kind of a useless player on the floor. And I think, you know, Mark is tough because defensively, I think he helps them a lot. And especially in a series against the Warriors, he would kind of help take away some of the interior stuff, play the angles a little bit in a way that they would really need. It's just offensively, it would be really tough versus I think one of the things Brooke has done very well in these playoffs is Milwaukee has mixed him up a little bit, doing a little more a little more actual pick and rolling, getting him going towards the rim a little bit more, especially when smaller defenders are on him. And other teams are finding he's just so big that if you're playing smaller or if you have a guard rotating over trying to contain him, he's just going to, you know, throw the ball at the rim as many times as he needs to until he scores because he's going to be able to pull down those offensive rebounds. And so, and the other thing is he's had all season shooting and had the faith of the coaching staff and his teammates where I think he'd be a little bit more unshakable 
if he goes 0 for 7 in a game, if he goes 0 for 8 in a game, I don't think Brooke Lopez would come back the next game and be, you know, squeamish about taking more shots. It's just the the headspace that Mike Budenholzer in Milwaukee has put him in, I think is healthier in terms of when you're talking about a matchup with the Warriors specifically. Yeah, let's shift to that series. So the way I'm going to phrase it is this. Milwaukee does not have belief in their system. They have devotion in their system, right? I mean, we've seen it in the course of this series. They actually haven't shot the ball very well as a team from outside against Toronto, but it really hasn't shaken them. They had no business at all pushing game three until double overtime. If you go down and say Giannis has a career-high turnovers, he scores the lowest points uh, in a postseason game this year for him. Uh, Their shooters are like, what, 14 for 44, some crazy number like that. They're absorbing a career-high minutes from Kawhi Leonard. He scores 36 points on 25 shots. Marcus Gasol steps up and scores. Pascal Siakam steps up and scores. And somehow this game winds up in double overtime. And the only reason that, you know, the the really game-changing play was the bang-bang charge call that Giannis took to to foul out because Milwaukee's offense kind of fell apart right after that. Um, I mean, that's pretty nuts. And so... Uh, kind of going back to your Lopez point, I think he can hang out. I think he can make it work against Golden State unless Kevin comes back and he's fully healthy and they go heavy death lineup and they just put you know uh, Lopez in a million pick and rolls and just see what happens there. Um, I think he's going to be okay for most of the minutes and they have a chance to to win those minutes because he's shooting the ball pretty well. I think he had a, a really nice game in, in Milwaukee earlier in the series and I wouldn't say the same thing about Gasol, though. I think there's a distinction there. I think he's been slower. He's been easier to exploit. Uh, he's been more inconsistent. He's not as willing of a shooter. I mean, there's moments where you just see his confidence waver or he's trying to make the right basketball play, and it winds up being one of those things where you needed to shoot that shot. Even if it's early in the clock, they're leaving you wide open. You have to do it. You have to be one of five threats on the court if you're going to keep up with Golden State. Um, I think Milwaukee is going to have a better time in those matchups than Toronto would. Um, And I think, you know, kind of big picture for Milwaukee too, it's really good that we did not tape a podcast uh, after game two because I was sitting there in Milwaukee basically feeling like talking myself into the idea that the Bucs could win the title. And so I'm curious from your standpoint, you've watched the Warriors very closely here over the last couple of weeks. How vulnerable are they to losing to a Milwaukee uh, or to a Toronto? What would you pick that series in against those opponents? And like what percentage chance would you give those guys? I mean, this is where Durant's health becomes such a major factor, if only because of the matchups. We'll just do this. Durant will play for game one. Okay, so if Durant is available for game one playing some facsimile of Kevin Durant basketball, I think that's huge. In part because, you know, you look at the Bucks specifically, I think they would want to matchup-wise have Giannis guard Draymond and kind of play free safety. And so the fact that you have Middleton who can kind of stand up and do to Durant what he's been able to do to Kawhi in the series, which is at least make his looks as tough as possible. You know, you're not going to, you know, as Middleton has said himself, you're not going to take away everything. You're not going to stop everything. You just want to make him work. And I think he could do that. Um, I just, I just don't know that anyone can can really take the Warriors at this point. I think that Milwaukee has the better chance just because Giannis does give them some problems. He can create havoc in really unique ways that require some game planning to deal with and some adjustment to deal with. He's the kind of player who kind of punch you in the mouth for two games and you don't even know what happened until you have a chance to really go back and look at the tape and, and make changes. So it would be the kind of thing where I could see a series against Milwaukee going six or seven. 
Toronto, I'm not quite in the same space, even even in acknowledging that Kawhi Leonard has maybe been the best overall player in these playoffs. He's just been, you know, really crazy good in all the way that all the ways that the Raptors have needed him to be. But aside from that, I just don't trust a lot of what's been going on there. I think Pascal Siakam strikes me as the kind of player who, if, if he played against the Warriors in the regular season, would kind of, you know, have so much energy and run the floor in all the ways that the regular season Warriors hate that he could have a really good game. But he's the kind of player who they could really kind of phase out of a series and really kind of marginalize. And then, you know, Lowry is getting a little bit difficult to predict from night to night. We already talked about Gasol. Danny Green has been kind of a no-show at times, which is a little bit concerning when you really would need his defense on the floor in a series against the Warriors. So I'm not quite as optimistic about the Raptors, but ultimately I think the Warriors are just in in a really commanding position at this point. Yeah, I would go uh, Warriors over Raptors in five if it came to that. And I think Warriors over Bucks in six. But again, this is heavily influenced by just the Draymond Green experience here from these last couple of days because coming out of game two, I had my second ever Giannis revelation. And, you know, for longtime listeners, hopefully, Rob, you too, you might remember this. My first Giannis revelation came in a bar in Dearborn, Michigan at the 10X Tavern (laughs) at the Dearborn Inn where a bunch of old guys were watching baseball on the television while Giannis was going head to head against LeBron. This is probably, you know, two years ago. And I was just asking myself, like, these guys don't get it. Like, this is why, you know, they're stuck in that mid 20th century mentality. They're not with the modern uh, Giannis takeover movement. And this is sort of where Giannis Inc. was founded, this first revelation, the idea that this guy was going to be the future of basketball. You scribbled the plans for Giannis Inc. on a napkin at this bar, essentially. Yeah, and now I'm a billionaire. It's great. <laughs> um, so my second Giannis revelation, though, came after that game, too, where he was just utterly spectacular. Uh, I wrote a column about it. You know, I kind of basically said, look, this guy announced that he was the MVP uh, with that game, like, you know, 15 minutes after he was announced as one of the three NBA finalists for MVP. And he came out and just punched him in the mouth. But it was just that slow grind. It was that Jordan-esque, I'm going to get eight points every quarter. And by the end of the game, I'm going to have chewed you up. Uh, it was the reads to his teammates. Uh, it was the just the collective empowerment that every single person on that team, uh, you know, feels very Steph-esque leadership style uh, from Giannis. It was just, you know, the kind of game that made you think, I've been hyping Giannis twice a week on this podcast as shamelessly as I can possibly do and still look myself in the mirror every morning. And yet he completely over-delivered on all of that hype. And so this is the revelation. It's this. Giannis embodies everything that I loved about Michael Jordan, the competitive spirit, doing things on a basketball court that nobody else has done previously or could mimic, uh, and doing it in a way where you know he's capturing children around the world. Those are the things that kind of like pulled me, made me love Michael Jordan. That's why I forced Andrew to go on that uh, our spring break all-star weekend trip. uh, You know, talk about hostages. I got you (laughs) hostage here in this a uh, little room here at the Moda Center. Andrew was hostage in a, a car in a courtyard hotel as we were uh, looking at Michael Jordan's high school and so forth. So it's everything I love about Michael Jordan mixed with everything that I appreciated about Tim Duncan in terms of not wanting to take credit, deferring all the credit. There's the famous scene after game two where George Hill is insisting that Giannis sits in the middle of the table, but Giannis wants George Hill to sit in the middle of the table. And they're arguing until finally George Hill just sits down on the ground and is like, dude, you're the superstar here. You have to sit in the middle. And so finally Giannis relents. I mean, some of that stuff is cheesy and put on for the cameras, I'll admit, but it comes from a place of truth and just the steadiness, um, you know, empowering his teammates, like I mentioned earlier. 
So when you combine everything I loved with about Michael with everything that I appreciate about Tim Duncan, this was my revelation. There is a chance that Giannis goes down as my favorite athlete ever, something that I never would have said was possible even three years ago, given how much I grew up on Michael Jordan. I'm just curious, do I sound crazy right now? <laughs> I feel like I'm being indoctrinated into a cult, but I'm also kind of buying what you're selling. You know, like, I'm curious what the flavor of Kool-Aid is that I'm going to be drinking later. So I'm, I'm not off board, certainly. It's just so peak open floor to come on and have that rant right after he scored 12 points and had eight turnovers. But it, and here, fouled out. Right, and here's the thing, though. I'm not sure Toronto has really found a winning formula, and this is my more serious takeaway from this series. As we mentioned, they were very fortunate, and they ratcheted up their defense in that second overtime period. Kawhi with this deal in the breakout. Um, you know, they had another big-time block from Pascal where he was just skyscraping, I mean, doing a skinny Draymond impression uh, with that block shot. That leads to another Kawhi basket, and then they get a over-and-back violation. So it was an impressive defensive stretch there, but they had some good luck prior to that. But how repeatable was that, right? Like, and this goes back to what you're saying about how much do you trust the Raptors? Like, as you see this Eastern Conference Finals unfold, what are some of the things that you're looking for, or what are some of the X factors maybe that you've got circled? Uh, and then, how do you, you know, forecast this for me? What do you, th- what do you see shaking out? Well, I think the interesting thing with that part of it is, you know, in terms of what's repeatable from that game. You know, Kawhi guarding Giannis a little bit more is certainly something we're going to see more and more of over the course of this series. And the ripple effect of that being, what does that mean for Chris Middleton? You know, as a guy who the Bucks really need him to be more of a scorer than he was, to be more effective than he was, because he's going to have opportunities against lesser defenders or smaller defenders or both. And so, you know, Eric Bledsoe has not had a great series overall. This is, It's been a pretty rough, you know, pretty rough go for him so far. And I think some of that is just going to be the, the dynamic of this thing in terms of, you know, the Raptors are a great defensive team who are designed in a lot of ways to give him trouble. And especially when his, his three-point shooting, which is not very reliable to begin with, has been particularly rough in these playoffs overall. I think that puts him in a rough spot. But Middleton is a guy who, if you move Kawhi off him, should have a little more breathing room, should have a little more to do. And we've seen him deliver in pretty big ways throughout the playoffs when the Bucks have needed him. And so that was a bad game from him and Bledsoe and Giannis. They all, you know, pr- pretty much copped to that after the game. Uh, some of that I would expect to change. And especially with Giannis, who over the course of these playoffs in particular, he would have a quote-unquote bad game against Al Horford, in which he probably, you know, still dropped 25-plus or whatever it was. His slower games tend to be pretty incredible as it is. And then given a game or two to acclimate himself to a series and to a coverage, has proven up to the task of adapting, of finding the ways, finding the creases. And Kawhi and the Raptors are a different level of challenge from anything That's the best part, right? This is like the ultimate thing to adjust to. Can you adjust to Kawhi if he's on you? And unfortunately, it seems like Kawhi is dealing with a little leg injury. I mean, he played through it. He's going to have a tough turnaround after playing 52 minutes career high. I mean, they need him on the court basically at all times. So that is sort of the central stakes of these series. Milwaukee this season after a loss during the regular season was 20-1. and Their only previous loss of the postseason was to Boston. They followed that up with four straight wins, as everybody knows. So you're right. Like, the bounce-back potential is there for sure. I think for, um, you know, Milwaukee, though— it's not just that Giannis is getting Kawhi on him. It's that they're showing him that second body and sometimes keeping somebody in the paint, right? So they have to find a way to either just hit three-pointers at their customary rate, which that's sort of like flipping a coin, right? Like it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. 
or they need to find ways to make use of that space that's either on the backside or in the paint or wherever Giannis isn't because he's drawing a lot of attention. And, you know, the knock on Bud coming into this postseason was he's not a great adjustments guy. I think he's been a pretty darn good adjustments guy. And, you know, hearing him talk after game three, he was saying all the things I was expecting them to say, right? So you could already tell that his kind of wheels were turning. Um, and I think, you know, if they can just unlock this Giannis versus Kawhi matchup or at least kind of, you know, limit the damage a little bit there, uh, they're going to be in good shape. But if you flip it around, uh, I actually think they can still win this series with their defense too. So let's say even Giannis kind of gets held in check with Kawhi. Um, I think that their defense against Kawhi has been pretty darn impressive despite his big numbers. Sure. And it's put Toronto in a situation where they're very reliant upon these role players. I think if you lose the Eastern Conference Finals to Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka, that's like the new phrase everybody says. You just tip your hat, right? <laughs> you just tip your hat. I think that's that's a pretty good place to be, I think, if you're Milwaukee. Yeah. I mean, but I think Toronto falls into some of the same camp too where they're getting beat by George Hill or Malcolm Brogdon. Like the Pat Connaughton game is coming, I'm sure. You know, these things are in play too. But I, I do think with, you know, Giannis and Kawhi in particular are such interesting uh, counterpoints for a series because you have two guys who are just incredible all-around players but in terms of playmaking aren't at the level of, you know, the kind of LeBron-type talents we're used to seeing or, or even, you know, a James Harden-type talent. Guys who are great, you know, individual scorers but also have that ability to hit really precise passes to the weak side corner. And so, you know, Giannis, I think, sees some good things, but his passes tend to be a little off. And maybe it's just because he's, he's working with these, you know, long, you know, tree, tree limb arms where he's just trying to whip this thing across the court where I think he has the right idea, but the shooter is catching it out of pocket. And then Kawhi has a different problem, which is I think he sees things, but maybe like a half beat too late. And so a lot of the passes end up getting delivered just a little bit off timing of what they need to be versus especially a defense like the Bucks, which they're rotating some big defenders around the floor. And as, as we've talked about, you know, putting multiple bodies in front of him and in between whoever is trying to get to the rim. And so having two guys like that who are great individual scorers, great defenders, great rebounders who do so many things so well and have really worked on their games to make themselves better ball handlers and to really expand their horizons now have to work in this particular way where they have to make those passes, I think is, is a really interesting space developmentally for two of, you know, ultimately the best superstars we have. For sure. And I look at like Giannis in the, the Jordan and Duncan hybrid that I was mentioning earlier, like Giannis has the kill mode Jordan aspect to it, especially with some of these like slithery dunks he gets in the half court where it's just like, you can just tell he just wants to put that basketball on your head. But at the same time, like he has very convincingly developed this idea that like if the right pass is there he's going to do a poor man's lebron version and continue to find his shooters right time and time again and and those guys haven't been hitting shots nearly enough to my liking i mean there's a lot of scapegoats kind of going around that perimeter um you know game two some of those guys got hot uh i think it was what Ilyasova really went off um but i think he's done a nice job of making that balance and again duncan's more in probably that deferential role right where you know sort of different positions but you know same idea like there's a kill mode and then there's almost like an off switch and Giannis has done a nice job of vacillating between those two um i think he's coming out in kill mode in game four i mean that's not like really going out on a limb um i do think that Kawhi's wiring as a kind of score first score second scored third 
Um, it's bothered me at times during this postseason because I do think it's contributed to some of the you know, Raptors' inconsistency just because um, you know those guys maybe aren't getting the quantity of opportunities that they need to sort of smooth out and, and be good. But their scoring balance was excellent in Game 3. Um, I thought Kawhi did a nice job of picking his spots and also getting to the free throw line was huge for him in Game 3. So I think if I was a Raptors fan, that would be my sort of my biggest takeaway is if we do have a winning formula being Toronto, it's Kawhi dominating on both ends, turning in a signature performance and kind of having the same physical type impact on Milwaukee's defense that Giannis has had you know, throughout this postseason. Okay, real quick tease here, Rob. Uh, we're going to come back later this week. Andrew and I will with a podcast that's going to dive into all the drama. Now, no offense, Rob, but I wanted to, you know, get a real serious kind of highbrow conversation with you going, and then Andrew and I will kind of, you know, stoop to the gutter to talk about the Lakers and the Magic Johnson drama, uh, talk about the Wizards and how they weren't able to consummate a, you know, a, a relationship with. Uh, you know, Tim Connolly as their new president of basketball operations, he goes back to Denver. We're going to have some inside stuff on that because I was working on that for uh, a pretty good chunk of today. And then we're also going to dive into some awesome questions we got, you know, free agency related, uh, you know, whether it's Anthony Davis, Kyrie Irving, uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard, the list goes on. So that's going to be coming up later this week. But Rob, I'm going to leave you with this final big picture question. It is from Derek and he writes, look, uh, we're basically through the conference finals. We're getting close to the end of them. And I got to say, I'm disinterested. I'm a league pass junkie. And I watch a lot of Suns games and Hawks games, but I'm just really not feeling what's happening during these conference finals. Are you guys enjoying this? And look, he sent this before, you know, the game four overtime thriller. And he may have even sent it before the game three Eastern conference finals, double overtime right. thriller. Uh, but I'm curious. I mean, expectations were raised so high by that second round there were so many intriguing matchups you know stars kind of making plays to fill in for you know lebron's shadow and so forth but when you're looking at these conference finals specifically uh, are you thumbs up are you thumbs down you know rate them on a scale of one to ten whatever you think i mean i think that the warriors blazers was about as entertaining as a sweep could be which is something and that you know in a, in a warriors world we kind of have to calibrate for that the fact that this team is so much better than so much of its competition now if the, if the bracket had been different you know they get Houston in the conference finals instead i guess there's more of a dramatic build up to that as a conference final series that could be satisfying but we already we got that series it's not like we've been deprived of the good basketball well that's the thing I, in my head i've almost flipped them around like the whole time i was waiting and really looking forward to golden state versus houston so to me that series actually felt in the run-up, during, and after, like the Western Conference Finals. And this Western Conference Finals, and again, I'm from Portland. I know a lot of the people who work for the organization. I knew a lot of friendly faces in the crowd tonight. It didn't really feel like the Western Conference Finals. No, and I think the Warriors celebrated the series against the Rockets as if it were the Western Conference Finals. Again, not a slight to the Blazers, but you look at this game, and the Warriors were pumped. They were celebrating. But, I mean, maybe this is just me reading too much into it. It seemed like celebrating that they were happy they pulled this off, this comeback so in they this did, particular game. So they got nine days off. They didn't have to play game five. Right. They were they were proud of what they had done, but it wasn't the kind of elation and relief. And, you know, I don't know that there's bad blood necessarily between the Rockets and the Warriors, but there's so much competition and they certainly agitate each other. I think there was certainly, a, you know, a, a feeling within the Warriors 
that they had satisfied what they had set out to do in terms of taking it to the Rockets in a particular way. And don't you think that the feeling inside the Warriors of the Rockets is their rival? I mean, that's the team that they circle when they're looking at the bracket and saying, like, that's going to be our stiff, stiffest test. We have to figure a way to slow down Harden. Uh, these guys present a lot of defensive matchups. I mean, I think they're losing a lot more sleep over P.J. Tucker defensively than anybody on Portland's roster. And that kind of feeds into what you're saying about their uh, you know, their their post-game four reaction. I mean, I think some of that just had to do with the fact that it was a game four, right? Because the longer you get into the series and the more times you lose to a team, I mean, that plants some seeds, right? And I think Portland just never really succeeded in, in planting any seeds. No. And uh, now I'm just torturing all the outdoors <laughs> metaphors. Uh, but... I think that was that contributed to sort of you know the, the routine nature of their celebration. Well, I, I think that the meanest thing that Steve Kerr has said in these playoffs and probably will say was when the series started, he felt that it was a series where they could really play a lot of their bench guys more. <laughs> and so I mean, I mean, literally every healthy warrior played meaningful minutes. Jacob Evans played meaningful minutes in was, a closeout game. I was just going to ask you, can you break down his four <laughs> minutes for us, Rob? Uh, that was wild. There was people on press row who've been covering the league all year who were asking who he was. Yeah. Jacob Evans comes into the game, is guarding Damian Lillard, did an amazing job staying down on some Dame pump fakes. But just the fact that he comes into the game, Damian Jones started a playoff game that the Warriors won in a, in a you know, again, a Western Conference final series. You look at all the guys who were able to stay on the floor. After so, not playing since December 1st. Absolutely. <laughs> um, all the guys who were able to stay on the floor and play versus in the Rockets series where some of it's the Rockets style of play is legitimately more uncompromising for guys who have flaws in their game. If you are, you know, if, if you're Andrew Bogut, for example, the Rockets will pick you apart. They will attack you every chance they can get in a way that the Blazers just do not. So there is that part of it accepted. But that's still the fact that the Warriors are going 12 and 13 deep in a conference final series, I think does say a lot about kind of the difference in the level of competition. Um, I think the Eastern Conference Finals have been pretty entertaining and have been more akin to a usual, the usual kind of momentum between games of a conference finals that we would expect the the level of adjustment the level of response the fact that these two you know really pretty interesting teams in terms of the personality and or, sorry the kind of the flexibility that they have uh between games i think is is really what we're looking for and so hopefully that one will go you know at least deep and if it doesn't then hopefully at least we're braced for a pretty good finals but i mean these aren't the suns and hawks this i think that's an okay thing for sure i mean to me uh the conference finals have been good not great i understand his disappointment i think the tv ratings that were shown in the eastern conference finals were like the lowest in a decade that may be influenced by the whole canadian market thing where do they count those households do they not um so i understand there may be some people who are sort of feeling Derek's uh concern i've found a lot to like. I mean, obviously the rise of Giannis is a huge storyline for the league big picture. I mean, if he was to somehow win a title this year, that changes a heck of a lot uh, about storylines everywhere. Uh, Warriors included, LeBron included, obviously Giannis and, and the foreign player question. Uh, that has huge ramifications. I already can't wait for the LeBron tweet after Giannis wins the title. The kind of like backhanded at the Warriors, <laughs> per, but also complimenting Giannis tweet. Yeah, strengthened number 34, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, the Raptors uh, making it a series definitely helped. If they went down 3 0, I, w- I would be more leaning towards Derek because. Uh, Frankly, I thought the Raptors might roll over in this series, so it was good to see them get one. Um, the Portland factor, it was actually kind of similar to what I was saying about Golden State earlier. I thought Portland's best series was the second round. I mean, even though they won the first round in spectacular fashion with Lillard, 
that second round series against Denver was incredible. And I was already bracing for uh, an emotional hangover from them. And that's, you know, pretty much what we saw. And I also thought they were totally outgunned. So I think maybe the best way to phrase how I look at these conference finals is I came in with uh, below average expectations and they've maybe barely exceeded those below average expectations. And I can understand why some people might have come in with higher expectations, riding the high of the second round, and now feel like, hey, this is a big letdown. And now we have to wait for more than a week uh, until the finals. And I totally get that. I mean, we got a Myers-Leonard 30-point game. What more that's could not, you want? If that's not league pass, I don't know what is. No, that was incredible. Uh, his first half was just insane. I mean, 25 points. Who could have ever predicted such a thing? I'm sure people made a lot of money in Vegas off that. There were MVP chants. Oh, multiple, <laughs> multiple rounds, which is <laughs> hilarious. It's funny when it's like, you know, Steph versus KD right. in Oracle, and it's like, this is kind of awkward. But now it's like Damien's sitting there thinking, like, Myers Leonard. <laughs> but at the same time, like, those guys came in together. Myers has had a really tough go of it. I mean, I remember this is going years back into story time, but um, Myers, like his second or third year, he got replaced in the starting lineup or the projected starting lineup at the beginning of the year by Joel Freeland, who was not in the NBA for very long after that. And my headline was Myers Leonard demoted from starting lineup. And that was such a touchy thing around the team that Stotts came out like the next day and was like, you know, the headline should have been Joel Freeland earned starting spot, you know, and he's trying to protect Myers, I think his feelings. Myers took a lot of crap from Blazers fans for years. Uh, you know, Blazers websites that may be Blazers Edge, you know, writers. Allegedly. <laughs> written for Blazers Allegedly. Edge. Uh, for him to kind of persevere, come through all of that, and have a big postseason moment, uh, considering all that pressure and, and getting dropped into it, uh, it was crazy. So I don't know if that salvages the whole conference finals. <laughs> I think we've probably seen better conference finals, but it is at least something to hang our hats on. Um, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm going to let you free now. You can go back out into the world and do whatever it was you were planning to do on this beautiful Monday night in Portland. Guys, we got some great questions already teed up for later this week, but please email them in, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. You can respond to anything stupid that I said or anything brilliant that Rob said on this podcast, or you can send in your off-season conspiracy theories, uh, predictions for the finals, thoughts on the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, and everything else. Also, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for our page. It's two words, open floor. Find that page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Guys, if you see Rob Mahoney on Twitter, throw him a little shout out. Say, hey, Rob, thanks for coming on. We always like hearing your voice. Bring back Breakaway for season three. He loves hearing all that feedback. I know he does. I always send it his way when I get it. Quick shout out to an Open Floor Globe member from Israel who I ran into at the Moda Center. That was pretty legit, Rob. I got to say, we're bringing the globe together. uh, And you can check out uh, the picture of that incredible uh, face-to-face Middle East reunion, I guess we're (laughs) going to call it, uh, on my Instagram page, at Oliver. We're also on the world-famous radio.com slash open floor. All right, that's all I got. Until later this week, open floor globe, I will talk to you.